So we are studying 1 Samuel. As I said, I love this book. I hope that you have come to love it too as we've been studying through it. Uh, For me, this is one of the most exciting, engaging, challenging books in the whole Bible. Uh, And what this book really challenges us to do, and the thing we're zeroing in on as we study this book, is, uh, is that it challenges us to examine our hearts before God. Really, through this book, right, we have a series of stories. And, and through these stories, the end goal of all of these stories is that we would see ourselves in these people. In the things that they do, in the actions and their attitudes, that we would see ourselves in them. And that in doing so, this would open up a door for God to work in your heart, right? And to change you and to form in you a heart for God. That's what we've been calling this series. You know, there are a lot of times when I'll stand up here on a Sunday morning and I'll say, this passage is like my favorite passage in the Bible. Well, well, this time I actually mean it, right? This is like my favorite passage in the Bible. I'm excited about this. We're here in chapter 14, really the focus of our story We've talked about Samuel and we've talked about Saul and now our story shifts to another man, a man named Jonathan, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And here in uh, in Jonathan, what we're going to see is a man who truly had a heart for God. So I'm excited about this. I hope you are too. If anybody feels like throwing out an amen or a hallelujah, one time I got a come on. Now come on, I wasn't sure. I had to hear the intonation, right? I was like, come on? Because you you could say come on like, come on, and then, oh, you could say it like, come on, so, uh, you know, if anybody, see, I'm, I think that's like a southern thing, for me, the whole south is just a big mystery, I don't know what's going on down there, as far as I'm concerned, that's not even the United States that I know, all that to say, uh, you know, if anybody wants to throw out an amen or a come on, that's okay with me, because I'm excited, I'm full of coffee and the Holy Spirit this morning, so, uh, we're meeting Jonathan here at the end of, uh, here in chapter 14, But the first time we met Jonathan was actually back in chapter 13, which we studied last week. Jeff led us in a great study of that last week. And here in chapter 14, though, again, we see Jonathan, and really he becomes the focus, and we're going to see in him a great example of what it looks like to step out in faith and step out in a venture of faith. That's the title of our message today, a venture of faith. And here's the thing, and this is really the key of what we're talking about today, that God loves to use people to do his work. God loves to use people. He would love to use you. God doesn't need to use people, but he loves to. And God is looking for willing partners to work with him in accomplishing his will. He's looking for people who will boldly trust him and who will partner with him in accomplishing his plans and his purposes here on earth. And the question for me and you, as we look at this, is, will we be those people? Will you be one of those people? God is going to accomplish his will. He's going to do it with you or without you. The, The question is, will you step up and get to be the person through whom God accomplishes his plans and his purposes and his will in the world? So in chapter 13, Uh, To give you a little bit of background so we can understand what's going on here in chapter 14. Last week we saw that the people of Israel were once again under attack from the Philistines. And it says there in chapter 13 that the Israelites had 3,000 soldiers. Now 3,000 soldiers sounds like kind of a lot, right? Like you could probably do a lot of damage with 3,000 soldiers, right? So these 3,000 soldiers, they're broken up into two groups. We got 2,000 of them are with Saul at Michmash, and 1,000 of them are with Jonathan, that's Saul's son, by the way, at a place called Gibeah of Benjamin. 
And the first glimpse, the first introduction we get to Jonathan is in chapter 13, verse 3, where it says that he led this smaller group, right, half as many guys, a thousand people, and he attacked the garrison of Philistines that was at Geba, and he defeated the Philistines there at Geba. But here's the weird thing. If you check this out, if you've got your Bible, just look with me over at chapter 13, verse 3. Jonathan attacks the garrison of the Philistines. He defeats them. But what does it say next? It says that Saul sounded the trumpet throughout all the land. Wait, so, wait a second here. Jonathan defeated the Philistines, but Saul sounded the trumpet throughout the land. And if you carry on in verse 4, it says, And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Now, wait, wait a second here. Did you catch that? Jonathan defeated the Philistines. Even though he had half as many soldiers as Saul had, Jonathan defeated the Philistines, but Saul took credit for it. Saul took credit for it. And Saul told everybody that it was him, actually, who had defeated the Philistines at Geba. And we're starting to see a little bit of insight into Saul here. It's not true what he's saying, and it tells us a lot about the characters of these two men. Even though Jonathan was Saul's son, what we're going to see is that the apple fell very far from the tree. They couldn't be more different as men. So, uh, you know, Jonathan defeated the Philistines. That's a good thing, right? Well, kind of. I mean, it was, it was kind of a good thing. The, the problem was, it was like throwing a rock at a beehive, more or less. You know what I mean? It made the Philistines very angry. And we read there in chapter 13 that in their anger, you know, just so upset that the, that the Israelites would be so obstinate as to attack them, that the Philistines, they mustered up this big army, 36,000 people. So we thought that 3,000 people kind of sounds like a lot. Well, it's not because the Philistines have 36,000 soldiers and they are angry. And they are going to come. Now they've kind of massed and they've, they've settled down all their soldiers in this place called Michmash, just over the hill from where the Israelites are camped and they just want to wipe them off the map, right? So the men of Israel, we saw this in chapter 13, they see how outnumbered they are and they start thinking, you know what? We don't stand a chance. Like this is, this is crazy, so you know what happened? They started defecting. That's what happened in chapter 13. They start bailing out. They say, look, we've got 3,000 guys. They've got 36,000 guys. This is suicide. We're not going to do this. We're not just going to go walk to our deaths. You know, we're outnumbered 12 to 1. I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. I'll see you later. Good luck. And so we read there in chapter 13, that so many men of Israel defected from the army that in one day they went from having 3,000 soldiers to having 600 soldiers. That's bad news. So the situation here leading into chapter 14 is this. The Israelites have 600 soldiers. They're facing an army of 36,000 angry Philistines. And if that weren't bad enough, the Philistines made sure that the Israelites had no weapons, right? They took away all their weapons. And not only that, they made sure that the, that the Israelites couldn't even sharpen their farming tools lest they try to use the farming tools as weapons too. So things are looking pretty bad. Like this is pretty much as bad as it's ever been for Israel at this point. They basically have no army. They have no weapons. Now how can you go up against an army of 36,000 men when you don't have any weapons and you've only got 600 guys, right? You're fighting them with rocks and sticks, right? I mean, they don't stand a chance. They might as well give up, right? 
The Philistines are encamped right across the hill at this place called Michmash, and they are ready to come over the hill and attack at any moment. It's kind of just a matter of time, you know, a matter of how long are they going to wait before they just come over the hill and, and wipe us out off the map. Right now, here, coming into chapter 14, Israel, as a nation, is literally on the brink of extinction, right? As soon as the Philistines come over the hill, they're kind of just done for good as a nation. We're not going to be reading about a nation of Israel from here on out because this is pretty much the end of them. So what do you do in a situation like this where you're outnumbered, where you're outclassed, where you don't even stand a chance? Well, as we're going to see here, Jonathan and Saul, right, this great contrast between father and son, Jonathan and Saul respond in completely different ways. Check it out from verse 1, chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. First of all, let's look at the response of Jonathan. What does Jonathan do in a situation like this? Jonathan says to his armor bearer one morning, he says, hey, you and me, let's go. We're not going to tell anybody, just you and me. Let's go, and we're going to check out the garrison of the Philistines. We're going to take a peek over the hill and see what's going on. We'll see what God might want to do. But look at Saul. What's he doing? He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. Doing what? Well, probably eating pomegranates, right? He's got that red stuff from the pomegranates just staining his face, you know, like staining his hands. He's chilling out, eating some pomegranates. Kind of a weird thing to do, don't you think, when your nation that you're like the leader of is facing imminent destruction. I think I'll just sit down and eat some pomegranates for a while, right? So here's Jonathan, and he's, he's sitting around the camp. Now try to imagine this. Jonathan's sitting around the camp, and he sees the situation that they're in, and he says to himself, you know what? This isn't right. We are the people of God, right? We're, we're God's chosen people. He called us to this land. And what are we doing cowering before these Philistines, just waiting for them to come over the hill and wipe us out? This isn't right. We're just sitting here waiting for them to kill us. It's not right. We've got the God of the universe on our side, and here we are cowering before these Philistines. This isn't right. It's not good. He said, sure, they outnumber us 100 to 1. Sure, they, they've got uh, weapons, and all we've got is rocks and sticks, but, but we've got God on our side, and that makes all the difference. And I, I can't help but imagine, right, in my mind's eye, I just picture Jonathan, that he's laying there in his tent at night, and he's looking up because he can't sleep, because he's, he's bothered by this situation. He's just kind of pondering these things in his mind. And I can't help but wonder if a name popped into Jonathan's mind as he was laying there at night. You know what name that is? Shamgar. You guys know who Shamgar is, right? Shamgar, yeah, Shamgar. He's my favorite guy, right? Now turn with me to Judges chapter, chapter uh, 3. Okay? Judges chapter 3. So here's what we read. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad and saved all of Israel. Shamgar! 
This is our man, Shamgar. This is the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. But what a great hero of Israel. Here's what he did. One guy takes on 600 Philistines all by himself with an ox goad. You know what an ox goad is? It's really just a pointy stick. That's all. No, I'm not kidding. It's a sharp stick that you poke ox with, right, to make him move. Okay, 600 guys, Shamgar takes them on. And, and what, he gets one verse in the Bible. I think he kind of, you know, I mean, I don't want to argue with God, but I mean, that's pretty, pretty awesome. So here's Shamgar, and I can't help but, but imagine Jonathan laying in his bed at night thinking, God, Shamgar, remember? You did something great through Shamgar. Maybe you can do something great through me, God. Why not? God hasn't forsaken Israel. God's still on the throne. God had promised this land to Israel, not to the Philistines. And God had promised them in his word. He said this in, in, the, in the law. He said this, five of you shall chase 100, and 100 of you shall chase 10,000, and your enemies shall fall before you. This is a promise from God. God had given them promises. God had already proven that he can give them victory when all the odds are stacked against them. Don't you remember Samson? Don't you remember Gideon? Don't you remember Shamgar, right? And so here's Jonathan, and his heart is just being stirred up, and he's thinking, God, you can do something great, even in this situation. Why not now? Why not today, God? Why not through me? He says, God, you've done it before, and who is Shamgar anyway but just a guy who, who was willing to step out in faith and be used by God? Jonathan says, God, I will be that guy for you today if you want to use me. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer when they wake up in the morning, he says, forget this sitting around stuff, man. Let's get out there and see what God might want to do. But what's Saul doing, remember? He's sitting under the pomegranate tree. He's waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to make something happen. You know, sometimes you'll meet people who, who make it seem like it's more spiritual to do nothing than to do something. But I want you to understand this. It is not more spiritual to do nothing than to do something. So, you know, sometimes you meet these people and you say, hey, why aren't you doing something about that big problem that's right in front of you? And they'll say, well, you know, bro, I'm just, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Just waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting for God to do something. If God wants to do something... I'm waiting, right? He can show up and do it. I don't want to get in God's way. If he wants to do something, he'll do it. I, you know, I don't want to mess things up. I'm going to wait. But here's the thing. This phrase, right, which, which does appear a number of times in the Bible, this idea of waiting on the Lord, you got to understand that this is not a passive action, right? Waiting on the Lord isn't like waiting for the bus, right, where you're just kind of like waiting for it to show up and you know, you just read a book until then or something, right? No, to wait on the Lord is an active action. It's a thing, right? It's actively seeking God in prayer and in the word and seeking his heart and expectantly waiting for him to respond and to lead you. It's an active expectant waiting. It's not sitting under a tree when you're about to be overrun by, by an angry army who's knocking down your doorstep, right? I don't know if you can actually say knocking down your doorstep. They're knocking down your door, right? All right, so certainly there, there are times when we need to wait on the Lord patiently, for sure. But patiently waiting on the Lord isn't a passive action. I hope you know that. Those of you who are waiting on God to give you direction in some area of your life, waiting on the Lord isn't a passive action. It's an, it's an active, expectant waiting that you do where you're seeking him and asking him and knocking right and waiting for him to speak to you and to lead you and to show you something 
If you're in a place today where you're seeking God's will for some area of your life, I would encourage you, don't just sit around waiting passively, but be actively seeking and knocking until he gives you that answer. That's what Jonathan was doing. And that's interesting, right? Jonathan's actually out there doing something, and he's the one, in my opinion, who's actually waiting on the Lord. Such a great contrast we see here between Jonathan and Saul. Saul's eating pomegranates, waiting for something to happen, but Jonathan says, maybe God wants to do something, and maybe he wants to do it through me. Why not? Check out verse 4. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other was Senna. In front of one, uh, the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Geba. Okay, so here's Jonathan and his armor bearer and they're making their way up to go peek over the hill and look at the camp of the Philistines, and they stumble upon something which is incredible, right? They, they find this place. See, the Philistines are in this valley around this town called Michmash. It's this valley, and the only way into that valley is a narrow pass, which, which passes through these two massive rocks, right? Kind of like cliffs. And, and there's one on the one side and one on the other side. And Jonathan looks at this, and he says, oh my, this is an incredibly strategic position. I mean, this is a place where a couple men could take on a whole bunch of troops because it's a bottleneck, right? It's a rocky pass, and they can only come at you one or two at a time. And what good is it if you've got 10,000 men if they can only fight you one at a time? This is a very strategic position. In fact, uh, a little history for you. During World War I, uh, British troops were fighting the Turkish army in Palestine. The uh, British call this the Last Great Crusade. And in this same location, and uh, the leader of the British army, his, he was a general named General Allenby, right? You can go online and read the story. And he did his homework, and, and on the basis of this story, he drew the Turkish army, kind of led them, kind of, you know, coaxed them, hey, come over here, guys, right? And he led them to this same spot, and he used this pass right here to defeat the Turkish army and win a battle there in the First World War. So it just goes to show you know, it pays to read your Bible. But here's the thing uh, I want you to see here. This is what's important, though. Jonathan would have never seen this incredible strategic position that God was going to use to save the nation unless he had gone out like he did with that attitude of, God, what do you want to do? Do you want to do something? Do you want to do it through me? I'll go and see. I'll just go and find out. God, what might you want to do today? He, he had that attitude that God might want to do something. Let's go check it out and see what the Lord might be doing. <coughs> a few weeks ago, I, uh, I shared with you some vision for the year, right, 2014. Maybe some of you remember that. I stood up here and I said, uh, I, I pinpointed two areas where I felt that uh, our, myself and our elders have been praying. We feel that God's leading us as a church. Uh, two, two areas I mentioned specifically. One was greater community involvement. Um, which means we want to reach out to the local community more because we want to shine the light of Jesus. We want to share the hope of the gospel and we want to reach our community in a greater way. We want to have a deep impact in this town and in the surrounding area. And the other thing I mentioned to you was that we, would, we want this year to make steps and move towards getting a facility of our own uh, where we can see a lot of the dreams that God has given us for Whitefields come to fruition and become reality. 
Um, you know, we, we would like to start a school of ministry. We'd like to start a place where people can be raised up and equipped and uh, equipped to engage society and preach the gospel and, and respond to society with the truths of the gospel and with the message of, of Jesus Christ. We want to have a constant outreach that we can reach out to the community with. We, we want to have spaces for youth and we want to have spaces for Bible study and all kinds of good things. So whether that means a secondary facility or whether it means a primary facility, we don't know, um, but we're, we're going to start knocking on some doors. What we do, uh, what we want to do though, like I said, is we don't just want to go out and, and make something happen. What we want to do is we want to knock on some doors and get out there kind of like Jonathan did with the attitude of what is it that God might want to do? Let's get out there and see. So who knows what God might want to do? Let's go take a look and see what he might be doing. We don't want to sit around. Uh, if we have a vision like this for what God wants to do, we don't want to just sit around under a tree waiting for something to happen, right? Uh, we want to be like Jonathan and his armor bearing saying, God, what might you want to do through us? Lead us, show us. We're just going to go out and you, you show us where to go from here. So we've been knocking on some doors and checking things out and actively and expectantly waiting on the Lord to lead us in these things. And you know, we don't want to be rushing ahead of the Lord or doing something foolish like Saul did last chapter in chapter 13. Uh, we want to be actively waiting on the Lord like Jonathan was. So over the last several weeks, uh, some things we've been doing, we've been checking on a lot of properties. Jeff and I have been going and checking some places out. Uh, you can be praying for us as we do this. You know, we really only want to do what God wants for our congregation, but we want everything that God wants for our congregation. And if any of you want to be involved in that, we'd love for you to be involved in it. Come talk to us after church. Uh, but another thing that happened this week, uh, Jeff and I had a meeting with some people from the city of Longmont, and we were discussing with them how our church might be able to reach out to the community in a greater way and be a blessing to our city and share the love of God. And uh, the response we got from the city was just amazing, actually. Uh, they were so blessed by how we served the city back in, uh, was it September, October, when we had the flood here in town. And, uh, you know, they said that they would love to partner with us because they see in us a group of people who sincerely care about other people, who sincerely love this city. So in, in the case, here's what we worked out with them, is that in the case of another disaster, they said, we're going to be the first people they call to come to this building and minister here. So I hope you don't mind that I volunteered you. So, uh, but they want us to be involved. They, they and they don't just want us to be involved in setting stuff up. They told me they want us to be involved in doing kind of chaplaincy stuff, like ministering to people in the case of a, a, another crisis. Also, they, the city is going to be helping us organize our Easter outreach. We told them about it, you know, and they said, we want to just support what you guys are doing. We want to help you in whatever way they can. So they're going to be uh, promoting it for us, and they're going to be helping it and just making that a great thing here in the park, uh, here in Roosevelt Park the day before Easter. And we pray that lots of people will come to that so that lots of people will hear about Jesus through this outreach. Uh, another thing we're going to be doing is that we're going to be working with them and doing an outreach in Thompson Park, just down the road here, um, in late July. And that's the thing with, that they've been doing every year, but they asked us, would you guys take this over for us? And they said, you know, you can do your Jesus thing all you want. And we said, we will. And they said, you know, <laughs> yeah. And they said, you know, they said they, they usually get like 500 people who come to this thing. So we're going to run it and we're going to share Jesus with hopefully 500 people, right? It's going to be good. And so the point is that God is opening some great doors for us. 
as a church, and it's great, it's glorious, and I'm excited to see how God's leading us and opening doors for us to reach out to the community in greater ways. So please be praying for these things. I encourage you to get involved in, in what God's doing here at our church. But, but here's how this ties in, and I hope you see this, uh, that Jonathan is an example for us of what it looks like to say, you know, instead of sitting here waiting for something to happen, let's go out and see what God might want to do. What, let's go knock on some doors and see what God might want to open up before us and how he might want to use us today. As Jonathan did that, he's, he, God leads him to this great strategic location where God could use even just a couple guys to take on an army of thousands. Check out verse 6. I love this heart of Jonathan. Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. I love that. I love this. I love this. There's two things here, two very profound statements that Jonathan makes. Number one, he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us today. It may be. What if, right? What if God might just want to do something through me today? What if? That's that attitude of bold trust in God that's willing to step out, willing to trust that God might want to do something great and he can even do it through you, right? Jonathan's attitude is, what does God want to do through me today? Now, what if you woke up every morning with that attitude? What if you went about your day every day with that question just rolling around in your mind? What does God want to do with me today? How much different would your life look? How exciting would your days be? God, what do you want to do with me today? Maybe God wants to use you to encourage someone who's discouraged. Maybe God wants to lead, use you to lead someone to Jesus Christ. Maybe God wants to use you to, to help someone who's downtrodden or going through a hard time. Who knows what God might want to do with you today? Every day when you wake up, all of us have the opportunity and the potential to be used by God. But the people who God uses are the people who are willing to boldly trust him like Jonathan did and step out and see what God might want to do through them. The second thing he says here, and this is so, uh, so huge, right? He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord. It isn't easier for God to save with 10 people than it is for him to save with one people. God revolutionized the world through 12 apostles. There were only 120 gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And it changed the world, right? God can save through many or by few. He doesn't need a lot of people to do a great work. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. God is looking for willing partners who will step out in faith and see him do his work through them. But here's the thing, and I, and I think this. If I would take a poll of, of you guys or, you know, churches around America and say, can God save by many or by few? Does anything hinder God from saving by many or by few? Most people would say, no, no. And here's the thing. I think if you would have asked those 600 men of Israel who were with Saul, can God save by many or by few? Does anything hinder God from saving by many or by few? They would have all said, no, man, God can do anything. But here's the thing. Only Jonathan and his armor bearer, they were the only guys who were actually out there doing it. You see, it's one thing to say you believe it, but it's another thing to put the rubber to the road and actively step out boldly because you know that God can do it and you believe that he will do it. 
Do you really believe that? Let me ask you that. Do you believe that our God, the God of the Bible, the God of Jonathan, can do great things through ordinary people? That he can do, he can save by many or by few. That it doesn't matter how big the army is that you are coming up against if God is on your side. Do you believe that? Here's another important aspect of the story. And it's the response of the armor bearer. I love this guy. Check it out in verse 7. The armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, therefore, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I love this guy. We don't even know his name, but we see his heart. And it's a glorious thing, right? The, the armor bearer, he comes alongside Jonathan to work with him and to support him in the thing that God's placed on Jonathan's heart. What an important role. What a crucial role. Consider the faith of this man. Here's Jonathan, and he wants to pick a fight with an army, right? With the army of the Philistines who have weapons, right? And anyone in their right mind would have said, what are you nuts, man? We can't do anything against them. You're crazy, man. You, you can be on your own for this one. I'll let you go and do this. If God can save by many or by few, well, then you don't need me, right? Go have fun. But just think about how that would have dumped a bucket of cold water on Jonathan's bold faith and trust in God. But his armor bearer says, I'm with you. Do whatever God has put on your heart. I've got your back, and I am with you, heart and soul. You know, maybe there's some of you who read this story and you say, wow, you know, Jonathan incredible to have that kind of faith and trust in God I don't know if I could do that I don't know if I'm a Jonathan well maybe you're not a Jonathan but let me tell you this then you can be a, an armor bearer for Jonathan both those people are important if you're not a Jonathan then find a Jonathan find an, an be an armor bearer who comes alongside somebody and supports them in what God has put on their heart to do let's continue on in verse 8 then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. Now I like this about Jonathan. I think this is wise. He's giving God a chance to confirm that this is what he should actually do. I mean, he's about to do something pretty major. So it's good to know if God's in this, right? And, and so, you know, actually, Jonathan hasn't received a concrete command from the Lord saying, Jonathan, I want you to go do this. He's just kind of going with the bold inclination of his heart. And, and he's wise because he realizes that, wait a second, I need to make sure that this is what God wants me to do. So he says, Lord... Please, uh, please use this opportunity to confirm whether or not this is what you want me to do. I'm going to go yell at those guards and say, hey, I'm up here. And if they say, stay there, we're coming up to you, then we'll stay here. But if, he say, if they say, hey, come here, we want to show you something, then we will know that God has given them into our hands. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you something. Jonathan said to the armor bearer, Come up after me. The Lord has delivered them into the hands of Israel. Jonathan tells his armor bearer, This is it. God's in this. We've got them right where we want them. I love this, right? This is bold, beautiful faith. A bold venture of faith. Verse 13. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And, he came, and as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. 
That first slaughter with Jonathan and his armor bearer made about 20 men within half an acre of land. So these guys are working on this army, right? And, and God's given them the victory. But this is a ton of work, right? You're talking like a couple hours and they've, they've gone through 20 guys. They've got like 36,000 guys to go, right? Uh, this is a lot of work. And here's what this reminds us of, is that if you want to be used by God, God will use you, but it's going to require some work on your part, right? Jonathan and his armor bearer, they didn't just have faith, but they had a willingness to work hard. If you want to be used by God, be prepared to work hard. But Jonathan and the armor bearer, you, you got to think, they're thinking, well, this just took us like a couple hours. We got through 20 guys. We got like 36,000 to go. Um, what did we get ourselves into? We can't, we can't carry on like this forever, right? We can't keep this up much longer. And we see that God sees that. And, and we read in the following verses that God caused the earth to quake, right? That's what we're going to see. God caused the earth to quake and caused such a confusion. We read in verse 20 that the Philistines started to panic they got confused who the enemy is, and they turned their swords on each other. Now, that's interesting, right? Because that's how we began the story. They don't got any people, and they don't got any weapons. The only people who have people and weapons are the Philistines. So God says, I'll use those people and those weapons to defeat the Philistines, right? I love that. So here in verse 16, go down there. It says that uh, the watchmen of Saul, Saul's watchmen and his army, they come to him, and they report, and they say, uh, Saul, we, we don't know exactly what's happening, but it seems that the Philistines are, are killing each other. We, I don't know how this is happening, right? So uh, check out what Saul does. It's kind of weird. Uh, Saul says to the people who are with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Okay, so he says, wow, yeah, you know, the Philistines are being defeated. You know what we need to do? Let's have a roll call. That's kind of a weird thing to do, Right? I mean, it's got to take a long time to count 600 guys. And, and right now, time is of the essence. There's a battle going on. People are dying, right? I mean, they need to get out there and fight. Why does it even matter to Saul who's not there? Like, why does it even matter at all? Well, here's why. Saul wants to know who's going to get credit for this. You see that? He wants to know who's going to get credit for this. He can't stand the idea of somebody else getting the glory other than him. More and more as we go through this book, what we're going to see is that Saul is slipping into doing things out of insecurity and narcissistic tendencies, behaviors, right? More and more, we're going to see this. We see actually another example of it as we go on. Verse 18, Saul said to Ahijah, that's the priest, he said, bring the ark of God here. The ark? What? What, the ark of the covenant? I mean, what are you doing, Saul? Are you going to hold a church service? Is that what you're going to do, Saul? Is this the time for a church service? I mean, it seems spiritual. It's always a good time to pray, right? But sometimes it's time to pray on the run, right? Like, okay, this is not time to have a church service. You know when the time to have a church service would have been? Earlier, Saul, when you're sitting under the tree doing nothing, waiting for something to happen. That would have been a great time for a church service. Now's the time to get out there and fight. Pray as you go. You know, the point is we see this kind of awkward, kind of contrived spirituality on the part of Saul. People are out in the field dying, and, and Saul wants to have a church service? This is just awkward. It's weird, you know? You can have a church service afterwards, Saul. There, there's a time for everything under heaven. This is a time to fight. Check out verse 19. 
Now it happened when Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. What does that mean, withdraw your hand? Here's what it means. Uh, the priest would have had this thing that you might know about. It's called the Urim and the Thummim, right? Kind of this uh, very mysterious thing that the, the priest would carry on his breastplate. There are two objects, and he would use these two objects to discern the will of God. So again, here's the point. What are you doing, Saul? What he did is he told the priest, hey, uh, I need you to figure out if God wants us to go and fight against the Philistines. What? Like, come on, man. Like, you, you, now you want to know, right? When people are, the battle's already going on, and now you, hey, could you figure out for us if God wants us to do this or not? This isn't the right time. Finally, the, it says that the noise from the battle got so loud that Saul told the priest, all right, we don't need the Urim and Thummim. It's pretty clear God wants us to go and fight. So finally, in verse 20, Saul takes his army, and they finally get involved in the battle. But still, right, they've only got 600 guys. We're talking tens of thousands of people they got to fight. How are they going to do this, even if they are, those guys are killing each other, right? Well, well, check out what happens next. Verse 21, moreover, the, the Hebrews, who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Okay, did you get what happened just there? Uh, remember, 3,000 guys went down to 600 guys. 2,400 guys who defected from the army back in chapter 13. Well, here they are again. And, and this all comes together. These guys come back, some from hiding, some from having actually gone over to the other side. And they come together and they help Israel defeat the Philistines. It's a great victory for Israel that day. And in closing, I want to wrap it up like this. There are four groups of people we see in this story. Like I said, the point of this story is for us to see ourselves in the character of these stories. So, so do try to see yourselves in these people. Four groups of people in this story. First of all, the first group of people we see, starting in chapter 13 and, and, and finishing here in chapter 14, are the sellouts, right? We've got the sellouts. Uh, we read about them in verse 21, uh, and they're the guys who back in chapter 13, when everybody was defecting, these people said, look, the Philistines are going to win this thing, and uh, there's way more of them than there are of us, might as well change sides. I'm going to go over, and I'll be one of them. And so here they are. They're fighting on the side of the Philistines against their own countrymen, by the way. But when they see that things have turned, right, tide has turned, uh, God's given the victory to the Israelites, they switch sides again. And now they're fighting again for Israel. These are the sellouts, and I wonder, how about you? How about me? Is that us? Is that how you are with your Christianity? When you're around certain people, right? The Christian crowd, you're Mr. Christian, Mrs. Christian. You've got all the lingo. You know all the right things to do and say. But when you're around a completely different group of people, you, you act differently, right? You, you switch teams back and forth depending on the crowd that you're with. That's who these guys were. They were the sellouts. They had no conviction, they didn't stand for something, no matter what the cost of standing for it might be. But that is, friends, that is the call of Jesus Christ. That is the call of the gospel. You know, the gospel, Jesus said, is the treasure which is hidden in a field that a man found. And in his joy, he went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field and obtain that thing. Being a sellout is a terrible feeling, I have to tell you. 
It's like living two lives. It's the kind of thing where you don't even want to look yourself in the mirror because you feel like a hypocrite. But I have to tell you, God wants more for you than that. God wants more for you than that. He wants you to be a Jonathan. He wants you to be an armor bearer. He wants you to have bold faith in God, to have conviction, to be able to say, if no one comes with me, still I will follow Jesus Christ. I will walk with the Lord even if I got to go it alone. Those were the sellouts. The second group we see are the hideouts, right? Read about them in verse 22 of chapter 14. Remember when the 3,000 defected, some of them went over to the army of the Philistines, but others of them hid out in caves, kind of just waiting. So, you know, those guys are all going to die. I'm just going to hang out in a cave and see what happens. They saw that the Israelites were winning the battle, and when that happened, then they said they came out of their caves and they picked up a sword and they got involved as well. When things were going well, they showed up. Uh, when it was a desperate struggle, they were nowhere to be found. These are the fair weather Christians, right? They're the ones who hide their Christianity. They keep it on the down low, right? Except in certain situations when it's safe to bring it out. Next we see the holdbacks, right? So we got the sellouts, the hideouts, and the holdbacks. This is Saul and his, his army. They're the holdbacks. Yes, they wanted to see God do a great work. They wanted to see a great victory for Israel over the Philistines, but they weren't willing to do anything unless they knew it was completely safe, unless it seemed like a sure thing. They weren't willing to take risks and step out in faith and see what God might do. But, but let me tell you, uh, it's better to step out in faith and occasionally fail than to stand back and never trust God boldly. Do you know that? It is better to step out in faith and occasionally fail than to never trust God boldly. You know, one of my favorite quotes from the movie Braveheart, don't worry, I'm not going to give you that freedom one that's been done before, right? But uh, one of my favorite quotes from the movie Braveheart is like a quote that I think a lot of people um, pass over. I was trying to find it online last night. I couldn't even find it, so I had to, you know, go back to some things I had written down because I was watching it one time, and I heard this quote, and I'm like, Wow, yes, that's amazing. I wrote it down. Okay, so here's the quote. William Wallace is talking to Robert the Bruce, right? And they're talking about attacking, you know, the the British, right? And fighting the British. And Robert the Bruce tells William uh, Wallace, he tells him, this is a huge risk, man. If we do this, it's a huge risk to take on the British. Uh, And William Wallace says, and this is what I love, he says, yes, if we do this, some of us will die. And he says, and if we do this, we very well may lose. But this is, this is, I love this. He goes, but you know what happens if we don't do this? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing would be more tragic than doing something and risking failure. Nothing would be, would be worse. Don't you see? And the same is true of a venture of faith. To take a venture of faith is to, to step out and do something which has the potential to blow up in your face and make you look foolish. It does. But you do it because you sincerely believe that that's what God would have you do. I'll tell you, if you're not doing something which has the potential to blow up in your face and make you look foolish, then you're not really stepping out in faith. And if you fail, let me tell you what, that's okay. At least God was honored and at least you stepped out in faith. You know, you need to learn to have the humility to say, well, I was wrong. That's okay. You know, there have been times when I have stepped out in faith and fallen flat on my face. 
But you know what? For every story of a time when I've stepped out in faith and fallen flat on my face, I, I could tell you 10 other stories of times when I have stepped out in faith and seen God do amazing things which were just, more, just bigger and more amazing than I would have ever imagined or thought. Just because I was willing to say, maybe the Lord wants to do something and maybe he wants to do it through me. Let's go find out. Let's take a venture of faith. It's better to step out in faith and occasionally fail than to stand back and never trust God boldly. So here's Saul and his army. They're the holdbacks. They're acting out of fear. They're driven by fear rather than by faith. They're so afraid of failing that they're not willing to boldly trust God and step out in faith and see what God might do. And finally, and I'll close here, the sold outs. That's our fourth group. The sold outs. Right? That's Jonathan and his armor bearer. The, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they weren't selling out. They weren't hiding out. They weren't holding back. They were stepping out and they were trusting God. And as a result, God used them in a great way. Let me tell you what. If you've been a sellout or a hideout or a holdback from this day forward, would you purpose in your heart? God wants you to be sold out for him. He wants you to have a heart of bold trust in him like Jonathan had. I want that kind of heart. I want to be sold out for him. I want to trust God boldly to do great things, even today, even through me. So let me ask you this. How about you? Will you ask that question today? And, and every day from now on, what might God want to do through me today? And may we have the bold faith not only to ask that question, but to step out and take ventures of faith and partner with God to see what he might want to accomplish even through us. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a great and mighty God. We thank you for all the promises we have in your word. We thank you, Lord, that if you are with us, who can be against us? And Lord, would you give us faith like Jonathan's faith? Would you give us a bold trust in God? Lord, would you help us to be Jonathans and to be armor bearers for Jonathans if you haven't called us to be Jonathans? Lord, would you help us to have that attitude of Jonathan to say, Lord, what might you want to do with even me today? And Lord, give us the faith and give us the bold trust in you that when you speak and when you lead, that we would step out and we would follow. Lord, thank you that you want to do great things through our congregation. Thank you for the doors you're opening for us. Lord, thank you that you even want to do great things through us as individuals as well, as well as a corporate body. So Lord, we just ask, Lord, do all that you would through us. Lord, if, you, if we are here and we're willing to be that man like Shamgar was, that man like Jonathan was on that day, Lord, would you lead us and would you use us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.